This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of murder and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On July 17, 1994, hundreds of thousands of North Koreans gathered in Pyongyang for the state funeral of Kim Il-sung. Resting in a gilded coffin atop a slowly moving limousine, Kim's body wound through the city center as onlookers wept and wailed uncontrollably. Having been indoctrinated for hours a day, almost their entire lives, regarding every detail of Kim's existence, most North Koreans felt closer to him than their own relatives. He was their savior, their god, and gods are immortal. Few North Koreans could comprehend what they were witnessing. Fewer still, how that god had changed from a young freedom fighter who risked his life for the independence of his people to a tyrannical dictator who subjugated, oppressed, and murdered them. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In the previous six episodes, we explored the grim and terrifying reigns of famous medieval dictators. Now we're moving on to the Kim dynasty in North Korea, the only dictatorial dynasty in modern history. Every dictatorship we've covered so far has eventually fallen. But after 75 years, the Kim family is still in power. What we're asking this season is, why? What makes this regime so different from all the others? Today, we'll start at the beginning and see how Kim Il-sung rose from a communist, anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter to the leader of North Korea. In the next five episodes, we'll explore how his unquenchable thirst for power transformed him into one of the most feared dictators, how his son, Kim Jong-il, succeeded him after his death, and how his son, Kim Jong-un, 
continues the family dynasty to this day. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In North Korea, Kim Il-sung is remembered as great leader and eternal president. Everywhere else, he's remembered as the architect of the most oppressive, violent, and secretive country on Earth. A hermit kingdom in constant conflict with its immediate neighbor, South Korea, and one that threatens to destroy any other perceived enemy on a regular basis. The country thrives on upending whatever tenuous peace might exist around it to create the impression that it's constantly under threat of attack. This strategy serves to convince its people that the world is out to destroy them. They must remain vigilant, heavily armed, and defer to their great leader who will guide them to victory. But North Korea is probably most infamous for its appalling human rights abuses, all policies that can be traced to the rule of Kim Il-sung, the only ruler of the modern era to establish a dictatorial dynasty, and one that remains the most terrifying and mysterious on Earth. Until the reign of Kim Il-sung, Korea was at the mercy of another autocratic, tyrannical ruler, its eastern neighbor, Japan. The Japanese government officially annexed and occupied Korea in 1910, although they'd maintained a significant presence in the country since the 1870s. During this time, Japan encouraged its citizens to settle in Korea to avoid overcrowding at home. As a result, Korea became home to the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. But the relationship between Koreans and these Japanese expatriates was anything but harmonious. Those who suffered most were Korean peasants and agricultural workers. The Japanese government reclaimed vast amounts of farmland in Korea and forced those farmers to keep working the land for the new Japanese owners. This created a system of indentured servitude that trapped many Koreans in an unbreakable cycle of poverty. This only got worse when Japan experienced a rice shortage in 1918. Korean farmers were forced to work longer and harder to produce more rice. At the same time, they had to ration their own rice consumption because the bulk of the crops they harvested were sent to Japan. During this period, the Japanese government also undertook a campaign to suppress or eliminate Korean identity among the population. They accomplished this literally by pilfering priceless Korean artifacts, which were either taken to Japan or sold to collectors around the world. To this day, almost none have been returned. They accomplished their goal in a more systematic fashion by forcing Koreans to adopt Japanese surnames and eventually banning the Korean language altogether. Meanwhile, they crafted a new hagiographic curriculum for students that venerated the Japanese as the saviors of Korea. Ironically, this was a method that Kim Il-sung would use on his own subjects when forcing them to learn about him. Worst of all, 
citizens who refused to capitulate to the Japanese were tortured, imprisoned, or killed. This systematic oppression led many Koreans to flee to Manchuria. Others form a resistance movement that fought back against the Japanese with protests and small-scale attacks. It was in this climate of oppression and rebellion that Kim Song-ju was born on April 15, 1912. The name Kim Il-sung wouldn't be bestowed upon him for another 23 years. Kim's family participated in the Korean resistance, which coalesced in what came to be known as the March 1st Movement. At 2 p.m. on March 1st, 1919, a small group of activists read aloud from the newly drafted Korean Declaration of Independence and sent a copy to the Japanese Governor General, an audacious and dangerous move that could easily have resulted in death. In one of Kim Il-sung's autobiographies, he claims to have been present for the event along with his mother and father, a boast, like many others he recorded, that is either wildly exaggerated or completely false. Kim recounted, I, then six years old, also joined the ranks of demonstrators. When the adults cheered for independence, I joined them. The enemy used swords and guns indiscriminately against the masses, this was the day when I witnessed Korean blood being spilled for the first time. My young heart burned with indignation. This inspiring moment led to other supposed acts of resistance by the young boy, such as placing nails along roads to pop the wheels of Japanese police bicycles and defacing his school books. In one oddly specific moment of youthful resistance, Kim writes that he wrestled an older, larger Japanese boy, whom he, quote, got down with a belly throw. According to a widely disputed and almost certainly apocryphal North Korean biography, Kim's father had participated in the resistance movement where he was arrested and tortured by the Japanese. A short time later, Kim's family, like many persecuted Koreans, fled to Manchuria. According to his own biographies, this unjust experience, along with his father's death just over five years later, indoctrinated Kim with a fierce pride in not only his father's struggle, but his Korean heritage and a hatred of the Japanese. Describing his father's final moments as only he, or his ghostwriter, could, Kim conveys an image of a torch being passed from one revolutionary to another. According to Kim, his father used his dying breath to convey to his son, you must not forget that you belong to the country and the people. You must win back your country at all costs, even if your bones are broken and your bodies are torn apart. It's a powerful quote, but it probably wasn't spoken. We do know that in middle school, Kim was seduced by the Marxist ideology sweeping through China and Manchuria. During the 1920s, China followed in the footsteps of the Soviet Union, conducting large-scale protests against an imperialist government dominated by the wealthy. This, combined with the revolutionary fervor instilled by his parents, led Kim to join several communist-inspired youth organizations, which at the time were seen as a threat to China's imperial government and considered illegal. When Chinese authorities disbanded the group, Kim was jailed for his participation. 
After his release from jail in 1929, a 17-year-old Kim joined several anti-Japanese guerrilla organizations in Manchuria, many of which engaged in rebellions against Japanese troops, who were now making their way from Korea into Manchuria. Within a few years, Kim had become a leader within the guerrilla movement, and soon, he would take part in a battle that would change the trajectory of his life. When we return, we'll explore how Kim became the most wanted anti-Japanese freedom fighter of his time. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. For Kim Song-ju, what began as youthful acts of rebellion quickly morphed into an all-consuming quest for revenge against his Japanese oppressors. In 1935, the 23-year-old guerrilla fighter joined the Northeast Anti-Japanese United Army, a group led by the Chinese Communist Party. Upon joining, Kim took the name Kim Il-sung, meaning Kim become the sun. He slowly ascended the ranks until 1937, when a 25-year-old Kim was put in charge of his own division of troops. Later that year, he executed a raid that would not only make him famous among the anti-Japanese freedom fighters, but eventually propel him from hero to legend. Even though this raid would later define Kim as a war hero, there is no definitive proof that he was actually the leader. In fact, there's a high probability that it was actually another Korean guerrilla fighter. Either way, on June 4, 1937, the Northeast Anti-Japanese Army, along with Chinese guerrillas, attacked a Japanese outpost within Korean territory. It's unknown whether any Japanese troops were killed or even present, but what is known is that the guerrillas burned down a police station, a post office, and ironically, a fire department. Then they seized the town for somewhere between several hours and a full day. During this time, Kim Il-sung is alleged to have made a speech calling on his fellow Koreans to rise up against their Japanese oppressors, after which he and his unit retreated back into Manchuria. Though the details of the speech may be lost or non-existent, the event features prominently in Kim's autobiography. He describes the raid as evidence that imperialist Japan could be smashed and burnt up like rubbish, the flames over the night sky of Pochambo heralded the dawn of the liberation of Korea, which had been buried in darkness. Soon, Kim became a high-value target for the Japanese, appearing on wanted lists and even earning the colorful and fearsome nickname Tiger. A special unit of Japanese troops called the Maida Unit was even assembled to kill him. And while they were ultimately unsuccessful in that regard, by 1940, they had killed or imprisoned nearly every other Korean leader besides Kim. 
figuring that his chances of survival were slim and that his efforts could be best utilized elsewhere, he fled to the Soviet Union. As a result of his communist ideology and battlefield heroics, he was welcomed into the country with open arms. Kim's flight to the Soviet Union coincided not only with the advent of World War II in Europe, but the height of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Almost 10 years earlier, in 1931, the Japanese invaded and seized a portion of Manchuria. And for the next decade, small skirmishes erupted between the two countries. Around 1940, the Japanese government initiated a series of far more aggressive measures than any it had previously undertaken. Measures that exacted a heavy toll on Korea. From 1939 to 1940, the Japanese enslaved millions of native Koreans. The majority were forced into hard labor, and almost 400,000 of these men and women died. Meanwhile, thousands of those men were forcibly conscripted into the Japanese military, and hundreds of thousands of women became sex slaves, or comfort women, for men serving in the Japanese military. Japan didn't officially enter World War II until its attack on Pearl Harbor in late 1941. But in the immediate aftermath, the Japanese army made rapid and significant gains in the Pacific theater. They were shaping up to be a formidable enemy for the Allied powers, including the Soviet Union. During this time, Kim and his fellow surviving guerrilla fighters were being trained at a Soviet army camp. And just as he had as a freedom fighter, Kim thrived. Only two years later, he was made a captain in the army and put in charge of over 100 troops. Though Kim and his men had hoped to do battle against their former Japanese oppressors, they were instead forced to defend the Soviet Union from the German army, who invaded in mid-1941. During his time in the Red Army, Kim developed a keen fascination with the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin. He particularly revered the way Stalin portrayed himself as a savior of the Soviet Union and used fear, intimidation, and violence to gain the loyalty of his subjects, methods that would fuel Kim's own ascendance in the future. From 1941 to 1942, Japan made significant advances in China and the Pacific theater. But the tide of the war quickly turned as the United States, Australia, and New Zealand pushed back against the Japanese forces. Their luck finally ran out in 1945, when the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. The U.S. employed a scorched-earth tactic. They decimated a major Japanese city and killed tens of thousands of civilians while simultaneously forcing the Japanese to retreat completely. Even so, the Japanese refused to capitulate. It wasn't until the Soviet army invaded Manchuria and the Allies dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki that they finally surrendered. No one was happier to see the Japanese surrender than Kim Il-sung. Not only had the U.S. decimated and humiliated the country that had enslaved his own, it was his ideological allies, the Soviets, who helped push Japan out of Korea once and for all. This included many of the Japanese expatriates who had settled in Korea throughout the early 20th century and stolen land from Korean citizens. 
meaning that for many farmers, not only did their country once again belong to them, so did the land beneath their feet. However, the United States and Soviet Union, the two countries instrumental in driving Japan out of Korea, would soon lay their own respective claims to the peninsula, further dividing a country in desperate need of unity. Though they didn't subjugate its citizens in the manner of the Japanese, the Soviets and Americans still occupied Korea. They agreed to divide the country at the 38th parallel, more or less the geographic middle, and install their own Korean-led governments in each of their respective halves. The Soviets needed a native Korean, but they also needed someone they could trust and who was familiar with Soviet customs. Because of his years spent in the Soviet Union and his military credentials as a freedom fighter, Kim Il-sung was the perfect choice. So the Soviets installed Kim as the chairman of the Korean Communist Party, a provisional government completely under Soviet authority. Chairman was more of an empty title than an actual indication of authority, since Kim's real job was simply to carry out orders from his Soviet bosses. But Kim wasn't satisfied being anyone's lackey. His entire life had been devoted to ridding Korea of occupying forces and returning the country to his fellow citizens. He began plotting a way to seize power from the Americans and retake South Korea, not only for Koreans, but for himself. During his time in the Soviet Union, he'd also seen firsthand the cult of personality that developed around its leader, Joseph Stalin. He believed he could use those same methods, not only as the leader of North Korea, but as the leader of the entire reunified country. He had one thing working in his favor from day one. Neither the Soviets nor Americans proved very popular with Koreans in either half of the country. Many felt as though they were still living under the tyranny of the Japanese. For one thing, the United States failed to establish a coalition government and actually kept several of the old Japanese governors in power. Once they did install a leader, they chose Syngman Rhee, who'd been living in exile in the United States on and off for the past 40 years. The Soviets didn't fare much better. They attempted to install a communist government which spurred a great deal of resentment from citizens who were not only anti-communist, but resented not being allowed to choose their own elected officials. On November 23, 1945, in Sinju, North Korea, this resentment boiled over, and students took to the streets to protest the communist government. Much like the Japanese before them, the Soviets sent in their own men, along with Korean forces, to quell the uprising. In the process, over 20 students were killed. But rather than being cowed into submission, other students across North Korea began their own protests. Fearing a full-scale revolt, the Soviets sent Kim Il-sung to Sinuju to repair the situation. Kim took full advantage of the opportunity to prove his skill as a mediator, not only to his Soviet bosses, but to the citizens of North Korea. At a citizens' assembly in Sinuju, Kim criticized the students' conduct but also acknowledged that the Communist Party was far from perfect. He placed the blame on rogues lurking in the Communist Party and government organs. Kim implored the students to trust the government and himself, 
To further endear himself to the students, he cited his own past as an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter and ardent communist. By all accounts, Kim was a natural liaison, diplomatic, empathetic, and respectful. The fact that he was tall, handsome, and charming didn't hurt either. He was able to alleviate the students' concerns, and more than that, he convinced them to work with their government toward a collective goal of unifying Korea. It was the first time he used his cult of personality to gain support. It wouldn't be the last. It was also his first test as a politician, and he'd performed admirably. For doing so, Kim was given a promotion. In February 1946, the Soviets chose him to lead the new, slightly more independent government known as the Provisional People's Committee for North Korea. Although he was granted wide-ranging authority by the Soviets, he still had to answer to them, a situation that was becoming less and less appealing. So Kim began his own effort to consolidate power and gain the trust and support of everyone he could. Not only would this prove to the Soviets that he could run the country himself, it would also make it easier for him to gain a foothold in South Korea when the opportunity inevitably presented itself. Korea had suffered a vast amount of damage during the Japanese occupation and World War II. Kim knew that the quickest way to his constituents' hearts would be by rebuilding the country and improving the standard of living. As such, he embarked on a campaign of building schools and hospitals and fortifying infrastructure. He also nationalized industries and legally granted complete equality to women. It was a noble pursuit, but hardly selfless. In fact, it was straight out of the playbook of many modern dictators, including Kim's hero, Joseph Stalin. Kim knew this was the quickest way to gain people's trust. He also knew that these privileges could be taken away just as quickly as they were given. But Kim's most significant move was redistributing land that had been seized by the Japanese back to North Korean peasants and farmers. Ironically, after World War II, North Korea was far more industrial and cosmopolitan than the more rural South. It also had a much smaller population, so it was not nearly as difficult to create jobs for everyone or spread the wealth. Under Kim, each family was given a small parcel of land, but just enough to remain self-sufficient. And for people who had been at the mercy of a foreign government that forced them into hard labor, this was a monumental achievement. Now they could choose what to grow and how much of it they wanted to consume. In all, Kim gave over 2.4 million acres of land to more than 700,000 farmers and their families. Not only did this give them a renewed sense of purpose, it went so far as to instill a sense of national pride. It also resulted in enthusiastic support for Kim Il-sung. And while he united and rebuilt the country, he quietly began purging his perceived enemies. Anyone he deemed a threat, from intellectuals to holdovers from the Japanese occupation, were either imprisoned or exiled to South Korea. For the next two years, as his reforms took hold, Kim followed another one of Stalin's directives, assembling and training a vast army. Many of the troops were former guerrilla fighters from Kim's days in Manchuria, 
but many more joined out of a sense of loyalty and duty to the country. And by 1948, the ranks swelled to almost 60,000 men. By this time, it was clear to the Soviets that Kim was the right man to lead North Korea. And on September 9, 1948, he was put in charge of what was now the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Soviet forces left the country in his hands. This marked the first time since the Japanese occupation that part of Korea was actually under Korean rule. But for Kim, this wasn't enough. He wouldn't be satisfied until the entire country, the land below the 38th parallel included, was under his control and all foreign troops had been eradicated. For Kim, the timing was fortuitous. Soviet troops had already left North Korea, and by June of 1949, American troops withdrew from the South. Within six months, the U.S. lost virtually all connection to the country, deeming it non-vital to its defense interests in the Pacific. At this same time, in his own effort to consolidate power, the South Korean president initiated a campaign to purge the country of communists. These developments gave Kim the impetus he needed for his most audacious maneuver yet, a full-scale invasion of South Korea. When we return, we'll learn how Kim's invasion of South Korea led to the Korean War and cemented his rise to authoritarian dictator. Now, back to the story. By mid-1949, Kim Il-sung had fortified North Korea into a self-sufficient country with strong industrial and agricultural sectors. Through wide-ranging reforms of health and education systems, he'd also grown immensely popular. But he wouldn't be satisfied until the entire peninsula, including South Korea, was united under his rule. But Syngman Rhee, the leader of South Korea, was just as adamant about securing North Korea for himself. As a result, there were many small-scale military operations launched around the 38th parallel. 10,000 troops from the North and South died before the Korean War officially began. Before Kim could invade the South, he needed permission from the Soviets and the Chinese. By 1949, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was growing increasingly serious, and Kim knew that one misstep could trigger World War III. In March 1949, Kim visited Moscow under the auspices of strengthening the relationship between the Soviets and North Korea, which was odd considering they were already on perfectly good terms. Kim's real agenda was gaining not only Stalin's blessing, but his military support. However, Stalin was preoccupied with a conflict in Germany and refused to consider Kim's invasion of the South. But only a few months later, two developments would cause Stalin to shift course. In August 1949, the Soviets successfully detonated their first atomic bomb, putting them on equal footing with their new enemy, the United States. Meanwhile, in what was now the People's Republic of China, the Communist Revolution had drawn to a close and revolutionary fighter Mao Zedong took control of the country. 
Naturally, his communist regime had the full backing of the Soviet Union. This alliance created an enormous communist confederation in Eastern Europe, China, and North Korea. And with this enormous confederation so far from the U.S. mainland, Stalin felt confident that they could add South Korea to their ranks without much interference. Stalin knew that the U.S. was more concerned about the spread of communism in Europe than in Asia and was less likely to view South Korea as a priority. With these auspicious factors shaping his decision, in April 1950, Joseph Stalin gave Kim Il-sung his support to invade South Korea. Kim then traveled to China and met with Mao Zedong, who pledged not only moral support, but thousands of troops for the invasion. On June 25, 1950, the North Korean army launched its first assault across the 38th parallel. It was a surprise attack that sent 75,000 troops into South Korean territory. In addition to outnumbering South Korea almost two to one, the North also boasted vastly superior firepower. This included Soviet-made tanks, machine guns, and an air force consisting of 180 planes. South Korea, meanwhile, was in dire straits. They no longer had U.S. financial or military support, and what troops they did possess were poorly trained. Needless to say, the North Korean army advanced with very little opposition. One day later, Kim Il-sung declared, The war which we are forced to wage is a just war for the unification and independence of the motherland and for freedom and democracy. But Kim, Stalin, and Mao all vastly underestimated the resolve of the United States to stop the spread of communism, especially after the revolution in China. And although Harry Truman was far more concerned about losing Japan to a communist takeover than he was about Korea, he knew that having a foothold next door would give the communists an insurmountable advantage if they ever chose to invade Japan. On June 26th, only a day after Kim's invasion, Truman appealed to the United Nations for assistance. The day after that, the United Nations Security Council recommended that member states provide military and financial assistance to South Korea. And, wasting no time, President Truman dispatched the U.S. Navy and Air Force to engage. But while the U.S. military had a mission, it lacked a strategy. It also lacked bases and outposts from which to wage war. Acquiring these things would take months, months that they didn't have. Because within three days of launching his offensive, Kim Il-sung's army managed to advance across nearly the entire length of South Korea. The North Koreans pinned the South Korean army in the tiny city of Busan on the country's southern border. Kim held every advantage, and he knew it. Even if the U.S. did intervene, he had the backing of the Soviet Union and as many Chinese troops as he needed. He was days away from accomplishing his lifelong goal, creating a single unified Korea under his control. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, 
we'll explore the factors that led to Kim Il-sung's transformation into one of the modern world's most terrifying dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>